So uh, for as long as I can remember, this notion of being a representative of, of something much larger than myself has been ingrained in my being for as long as I can remember. And these dynamics of honor and shame have been present in my story ever since then. It has helped me understand my place in my family, in my community, and in the world. For example, growing up in Philly, Let's go, Sixers, come on, we need that win. <laughs> uh, us kids would run the streets and alleys all day long after we got home from school, and everyone in the neighborhood lived in row homes. So everybody saw and heard everything, for better and for worse. Uh, <laughs> but when us kids got into stuff that we shouldn't be doing, the elders would tell us, don't misrepresent your parents like that. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves for talking like that. Don't y'all know that you are the future of this community? What they were teaching us was that what we did or said was a reflection of those that we come from. When we were cutting up, we were dishonoring those who have helped shape us and mold us into who we were. It would make people think that those who were raising us weren't doing a great job. Are you with me? Yeah. So what, what we were doing when we were cutting up is bringing shame and dishonor to our families' names. So another example, it's more on a, on a lighter note. <laughs> I was an athlete in high school and in college, and, and when we would win, the community would chant, I believe that we just won. I was like, we? Like, I was the one sweating <laughs> and running. <laughs> but there was something about wearing the name of the community on our chest that brought honor to that community when we won a game. And when we lost, ain't nobody want to talk about it because it was shameful, right? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, y'all was with us when we won, but when we was down, ain't nobody, all right, whatever. <laughs> so we would feel a sense of shame. And these examples are many among other things that some of you may be able to relate to in some form or fashion. And they display that our understandings of who we are and what we do represents the people that we are connected to. And even though our culture is at large an innocence guilt framework, there are still dynamics of honor and shame. So in fact, these dynamics have been around since the beginning of human history. And with that said, we're going to continue walking through the gospel according to Matthew, but with an honor-shame lens. However, we got to do some groundwork first. So, so what is honor-shame? What's the whole dynamic of that? The scriptures were written by a people who come from an honor-shame reality. In their cultural background, everything was about connectivity. Good reputation. You are who you are connected to. It was all about maintaining a social status that was of honor among the public eye. So the key to life was to, was to, was to, was to gain honor. And to honor someone was to respect them, to value them, to enhance their reputation. And because honor is shared relationally, what one person did either built up or tore down the reputation of those that they represented. Furthermore, your conduct impacted the reputation of God as well as his covenant people before the nations. And as an image bearer, you bear his name to the world. So we must be careful what we do and what we say. More on that later on. 
So if I can't stress this enough, reputation was important and what you did impacted that positively or negatively. And the worst thing that you can do was to bring shame upon your community. The public, excuse me, I'm, I'm loud, y'all. You just got to allow this passion to come out. So <laughs> for those of y'all too, <laughs> the public will lose total respect for you, your family and friends because you'd be seen as disgraceful. Shame carries this deep emotional weight of embarrassment and humiliation. We have to make an important distinction, though. There's a difference between the shame that you, you feel as a result of your own sin, but then there's also a shame that you feel when something sinful has been done to you. And that's not yours to carry. More on that later on. <laughs> For example, when my mother, one sibling, and I moved to Portland, we were technically houseless. I moved here when I was about 13, 14 years old. I had a five-year-old brother and my mom was just barely in her 30s. And I remember as we had this experience of being technically houseless, trying to figure out where we could live, we ended up staying in a relative's apartment that was on the verge of eviction. And I remember vividly one day, he came by drunk, and he and my mother got into a conversation, and things escalated really quickly. And so I stepped in, and that made things escalate even more. So as I'm dealing with that circumstance, I can only imagine the emotions that were going through my mother's head and in my brother's head. But in, in mine, I had flashbacks of all the domestic violence that I've watched as a child. It's all coming back up. So I'm going, what, what, what do I do? So I walked down to my school and I went into one of my counselor's office and I broke down in front of her. But I was terrified to tell her what happened, because I didn't want to bring shame to my family. I felt this shame of what I've just experienced again. I didn't want anybody to think less of my mom or even of my relative. I didn't want anybody to pity us just for the sake of being a charity case. I felt this shame that wasn't mine to carry. Why is it that a 14-year-old boy can't ask for help? Man, I, re I remember that humiliation and embarrassment that I felt. But I ended up letting it out. I had to tell her, regardless of the repercussions that may have come. And my goodness was that freeing, because they helped us out from that day forward. Things smoothed out, relationships mended, things panned out because freedom was sought after in the sense of vulnerability. So that is just an example that shame that you experience as a victim of someone else's sin is not your fault. Jesus wants to heal you from that shame because it's not yours to carry. But he also wants to heal you from the shame from what you actually do. In regards to shame from one's actions in that culture, shame could lead you to being disowned by your family. And to no longer have connection with your family would be gut-wrenching because your identity was attached to those that you were attached to. For better or for worse. You still with me? Okay. Love it or hate it, the truth is that we were all called and created to be a reflection of something much bigger than ourselves. And that something is the most high God. 
We were all made in his image and we are his reflection on the earth. And by creating us as his image, he gave humans the most honorable position above all the creatures. And that is to be his image bearers, his representation, to bear his name. What other place of honor could we ask for? This is how the story of humanity begins, with honor. We need to be careful about how we talk about humanity. We started with honor, not shame. Okay, I hear a couple of (laughs) y'all. And as we read on from Genesis 1, we get to the Eden narratives where Adam and Eve were created and they were told to work and keep the garden, which is the same language being used for the priest in the temple in the biblical story. So Adam and Eve were given these roles of honor to be priest in his garden temple. And then the last statement of Genesis 2, it states, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were completely seen and vulnerable, not only before God, but before one another. And they felt no shame about it. And as many of you know, the story took a sharp turn. As soon as the serpent figure enters the scene, his point and his plan is to bring shame into the human story where it doesn't belong. So he tempts and deceives the woman to eat of the forbidden tree and the man willingly follows and everything changed just in a few moments. Sin entered the story of humanity because they dishonored God by disobeying him and sin is ultimately disloyalty to God. It's the breaking of relationship with him. At the core of sin is like a form of idolatry, right? That is an, an abandoning of the God whose image that we bear. So this might sound weird, but bear with me, okay? Don't email me. <laughs> Since shame impacted who you represented, Adam and Eve's disobedience was witnessed by the rest of creation. And it brought shame to the reputation of the one whose image they bore. And I know that's probably a concept that is not so easily grasped by some of us, but Adam and Eve were the first to do what the people throughout the biblical story and even in the extra biblical story would do. That is why God was keen to redeem his reputation through a perfectly obedient human who would honor his name correctly. But sin doesn't actually change God's honor. Let me get that straight. Sin is just the failure to give him his due honor, his due praise, his due adoration, his due allegiance. And as a result of their disobedience, we read in Genesis 3, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the humans attempted to cover and hide from God as if you can do that. Displaying that they now felt shame. Shame makes you duck and cover. You don't want to be seen. You want to hide, right? I know I'm not the only one in this room. They did what we all try to do when we sin. We 
try to cover and hide ourselves from God and even from one another. Shame makes us not want to be seen on any level. And this isn't just a physical reality. This is an emotional reality as well. But the narrative continues. Shame was the consequence of their disloyalty and the fall from honor to a place of shame was tragic. They went from creatures that walked with God to creatures that now try to hide from him. But God pursues and invites them back in to honor by saying, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Those are questions. God isn't accusing. He's asking questions. He's inviting them back in, even though they're at wrong. Come back to me. And then he goes to explain the consequences of what they just participated in. Pain, difficulty, and death would now be a part of their reality in this world and all that would come after them. Yet God was merciful to them as he provided animal skins as clothing. A couple of implicit things to note. Another creature's life was taken to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness. Remember that. They were exiled from the garden and were barred access to the tree of life, and shame has been integrated into the human story. And I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with the cross, Hakeem? glad you asked. Full of questions this morning. (laughs) God did not leave them without hope. He decreed the remedy in verse 15. He said, I will put enmity as he's cursing the serpent. He doesn't curse the humans, but he curses the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Oh, we about to get fired up this morning. So from that moment on through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, God worked through a chosen family who he attached his namesake and his reputation before the world to. So when the family of Abraham stepped into who God called them to be, it brought honor to his name before the nations. But when they failed to do so, shame reoccurred in the story. Imagine what it felt like when they were were rampant in their idolatry and then were exiled from the land before the nations, y'all. Think about what the nations were thinking about Yahweh. Isn't that the God that brought you out of Egypt? That's the God who did all of those plagues, destroying the Egyptian gods? That's the God who, who allowed you to usher into this promised land, gave you milk and honey? That's the God that provided for y'all for 40 years in the wilderness. He allowed you to get exiled? Huh, shame. Okay, y'all not with me yet. That's fine. (laughs) They profaned his name. And God don't play about his name or his reputation. And despite the shortcomings of humanity, from Genesis 3 to Malachi, he was going to make sure that the serpent crusher arrived. And here we come. For the last several years, this church has been going through the gospel according to Matthew. It's been a minute. (laughs) We even stretched the cross out for a minute, right? It's cool. Hey, look, it's whatever. 
This is Matthew's retelling of the story of the serpent crusher, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, okay, there it is. We are picking up in chapter 27, verse 45. So if you would, and if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of Scripture? As if I just wasn't reading Scripture, but you get the point. So it says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up. His spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And Mary, and, and sorry, her name was probably Mary. <laughs> and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Maybe seated. So, as you have been going through Matthew, Jesus has experienced all types of stuff. Betrayal, arrest, beatings, mocking, torture, and here he is hanging on a cross, and he's been here for three hours at this point. But creation sensed the suffering of its creator, and darkness fills the land for another three hours. In agony, Jesus cried out to the Father as he quoted Psalm 22. And there's a lot to unpack there. We won't get into it today. But some people misunderstood and thought he was calling for Elijah, but they were mistaken. Then Jesus voluntarily breathes his last, and he dies. Our king dies. Our Lord dies. Our master, our rabbi dies. And the curtain tore, the earth shook, graves were opened, and the Roman soldiers acknowledged that this man was the son of God. And the faithful female disciples were there to witness it all. This passage is heavy and dense, and there's plenty to unpack around the atonement and the theories and perspectives on that. So you'll cover that next week. So stay tuned. <laughs> Yet I want us to take a moment to thank Jesus for sacrificing himself and giving his own life to purify us from sin and unrighteousness. He put an end to the sacrificial system because it was all pointing to him. 
There's no need for any more animals to lose their lives because I am here. Jesus gave his blood so that we could be reconciled back to God and with one another. He died to remove our sin in all of its manifestations. And he took away our guilt, but he also wiped away our shame. And one thing to note, when we typically talk about the cross, we jump from the like, historical event right to its theological implications. But we're missing something right in the middle. And that's the social reality of what Jesus was facing in this moment. So, what do you think we're going to do? We're going to unpack that. The way that Jesus died for our sins was shameful in the eyes of the public. I mean, okay, put yourself in his shoes for a second. Imagine being falsely accused, then arrested, then strung up to a piece of wood in the middle of Pioneer Square while you're naked and people are walking by, mocking and laughing and trying to figure out what is going on. Imagine the humiliation that you would feel, and you're hopeless and helpless because nobody can do anything. But Jesus wasn't hopeless. You'll cover that in two weeks. The utter humiliation is right in the same ballpark of what Jesus experienced on his cross. And he was joining the company of thousands of people who were crucified under Roman rule. Still with me? All right, I just got to check in, y'all. I'm just saying. The method of crucifixion isn't unique to Jesus, though. However, the significance is unparalleled. It's unrivaled. Yet crucifixion was a way for the Romans to shame those they deemed were in opposition to the social hierarchy and social status quo. And the victims of crucifixion were, were often slaves who were considered rebellious against their masters and also those who were considered politically provocative, threatening, and even considered a terrorist. Crucifixion was a mockery of exalting someone whom they thought needed to be exalted. Does that make sense? Those that they considered to be reversing the social hierarchy, oh, you want to be exalted? We'll help you out with that. This was the most shameful way to die in that time. And it was a way of keeping people in their place because it struck fear in the heart. Jesus was shamed in front of all who were present to see. And the Romans mocked him by putting an inscription above his head, Jesus, the king of the Jews. Oh, you think you're a king, Jesus? Okay. Well, we'll treat you like a king then. Let's give you this crown. Let's give you this robe. Let's lift you up for all to adore you as you want, right? Now remember, shame isn't just an individual thing here. Spread to those that you were connected to. And it was utterly humiliating to be associated with anybody who was crucified. Now, not only was Jesus enduring the humiliation, but imagine the implications and ramifications for those he was connected to. Most of his closest friends abandoned him. How shameful would it be that you were following a man for years? You dedicated your life to this, and this man is crucified. Imagine the reputation of Mary and Joseph and their family name. Oh, your firstborn son was crucified? Shameful. And the story of how Jesus got here already made people feel a little type of way about them, right? 
You are who you're connected to. And those who were connected to Jesus, it would impact those that they were connected to, their family and friends. It spreads like wildfire. So not only are those the things, but Jesus faced another element of shame where the people that he came to save and restore back to God as their Messiah stood before Pilate and said, crucify him. What a way to say his reputation is tarnished. Kill him. Man. The weight that Jesus must have felt in what seemed like forever. Yet, who does Matthew record being at the scene? The women. That's a big deal. They knew the social impact of being there and all of the consequences of being associated with Jesus, but they also knew the potential danger especially since they were considered as second-class citizens. But they said, none of that matters. We are here for our rabbi. We see him in a place of honor, regardless of what y'all try to do to him. Jesus is able to empathize with our pain because he was not exempt from experiencing the honor-shame dynamics within the post-Genesis 3 world. And I need y'all to hang on with me for just a little bit longer. On the cross, he was reversing what took place in Genesis 3. And he was also restoring the honor that we were created with in Genesis 1 and 2. The most honored being in the cosmos chose to become a human to remedy this. As the ultimate image bearer, he is the exact representation. He is the exact reflection. He is the exact image of the invisible God. And on the cross hung this image bearer who was also known as the second Adam. And from Adam's side, another life was formed and she was called woman. And now from the side of Jesus, pours out his life-giving source, his blood, to make sure that his bride would be formed and her name is the church. That is you, ladies and gentlemen. And as the rivers flowed from Eden. Jesus is now having water leak out his side. This is the new river of life. As the forbidden fruit was taken off the tree, Jesus is putting sin back on the tree. Oh, okay, okay, here we go. <laughs> and as they ate, it was like they were tasting death because death was now their fate. But Jesus is tasting death on a tree so that we can taste life. After Adam and Eve sinned, they were ashamed of their nakedness and were clothed with animal skins. And as he atoned for sin, Jesus was stripped naked as a way to shame him. And instead of animal skins, our shame is now covered by his blood. The cross is the new tree of life from which eternal life spreads to the world. Just as Adam and Eve were exiled out of the garden where they would die one day, Jesus is exiled on that cross where he gave up his spirit and he died. Now, Jesus is the offspring 
of the woman that was talked about in Genesis 3.15. And he is being bitten by the serpent on this cross. And I can only imagine the fact that Satan wanted to shame God himself in front of the world and bring dishonor to his name by saying, look what I can do to the son of God. Can't even protect his own son. But as folks in the, folks in the black church say, but God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was God was putting Satan and the kingdom of darkness to shame on that cross. Yes. He thought it was a victory, but he, it was his ultimate loss. That's right. The Jewish leaders, the Romans, and the serpents intended to humiliate Jesus on the cross, but the Father said, this is how I exalt my son, who has brought me honor by being perfectly obedient to me, even unto a cross. To the people, Jesus' death was the epitome of shame, but to God, it was the supreme act of faithful obedience. Jesus understood that he represented far more than himself. He was the representative of the Father. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, we now have been restored to a place of honor as a new humanity in him. Remember, God created humanity to co-rule with him on the earth and to be priest in his temple. And through the breaking of the body of Jesus, he has brought people from all nations, tongues, and tribes. And we are a holy priesthood. And we are his mobile, living, active temple. People don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. They come to a basement in Portland, Oregon. After the return of the king, he will co- we will co-rule with Jesus in the new creation forevermore. You want to talk about restoration. Jesus took it to a whole nother level. However, we don't get there unless we, too, pick up our cross daily and follow him, no matter what the world may try to shame us for, because it's powerless, and the cross has proven that. Let me be clear. The restoration of honor and the healing from shame are not the end game. Union with the Father, Son, and Spirit is the end game, and healing and restoration is an outflow of that. It is the result of that union. We don't, want the, we don't want the good stuff without the good person. Nevertheless, Jesus wants to heal us from our shame. Don't, don't mishear me. And that's what he gave his life for. He died to redeem us from that shame, not just from our past, but from our present and future as well. It's not like Jesus just died for past sins and now you got to figure out your present and your future. It's called scandalous grace. I know y'all hear me. (laughs) But before we dive into that, I can't stress enough that because of what Jesus has experienced on the cross, he's not oblivious to the shame that we experience. He truly does empathize with us. What a king we have that knows what it's like. My friend Lauren Wilson told me this yesterday. At the core of shame is this belief that God messed up when he made you. And that's a lie. God made you and me in his image, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't make no mistake. So your being is not the problem. He has spoken your value, and it's not determined by your flawed actions. And he has the ultimate say and final say on that. And if you are experiencing shame from the sins that you have committed, 
Jesus is inviting you into healing through repentance and forgiveness. Jesus ain't about behavior management. He's about transforming holistically. Repentance and forgiveness is the route to go. And repentance is about a change of your mind because it leads to a change of your action. Jesus doesn't show up on the scene shaming people by going, hey, feel like you're the most vile thing on the earth. My kingdom is here. Good news, right? No, he says, change the way you think about everything because my kingdom is otherworldly and it's going to take a reorientation. And believe in that. He wants to renew your mind so that it renews your actions. The enemy wants the narrative of your life to be spoken with a tone full of shame and for you to feel sorry for yourself and to remain in a posture of condemnation. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because it is through him that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. We have been set free from shame, from the, from the bondage of sin, and from the fear of death. And as one of my favorite spoken word artists said, his name is Joseph Solomon. He said, the rings, I'm paraphrasing, but he said the rings in Jesus' hands are evidence that we are married to him until death brings us closer. Not until we part. So we don't have to fear death because it will usher us in to deeper proximity to him. And that's only possible because of the rings in his hand. They are the evidence of his covenant with us. All right, let me, come on, I can't rein it back in. <laughs> Freedom from your shame is only found in him. Think about it. Have you ever tried to cope with created things to you know, remedy that shame and it doesn't work, it actually leaves you more shameful and empty. You feeling shame from an addiction? Let me just get into everybody's business. Shopping, internet, gambling, porn, you name it. You feeling shame from that? Maybe you feel shame because of what you've done out of your anger, especially during this COVID season. Or maybe you felt shame because you've been living in disobedience to Jesus. Or maybe you're feeling shame because of some form of dishonesty and deceit that you have given to someone. Well, let me tell you this. The world and the enemy may shame you by stating that you're nothing more than an addict or a hothead, but all of that is a lie. Jesus calls you into repentance and forgiveness. He enters into your shame. And he lifts you up among the rest of us who are in the same boat as you, where we all need restoration. We all need repentance. We all need the forgiveness of the Father that has been lavished out through the Son and has been evidenced by the Spirit. Theology 101. Some Trinitarian doctrine right there. (laughs) For you to be lifted up into who God created you to be, and you live from that place of honor. That is the call. And maybe you do feel that shame, and we're going to address that. Or maybe you're experiencing shame as a result of what has been done to you. And Jesus wants to heal you from that. He wants to take away that weight that you were never meant to carry. And maybe you felt shame as a result of some form of assault that has been done to you. I get it. My brother, my sister, that's not your fault. And in this family, we don't just say we're family like it's something cute to say. Like, Jesus' blood is the thing that binds us all together. 
It is the blood that flows through the, the veins of the body. So in this family, you are valued. You are loved. You do not bring shame to the family name. You are honored here. Maybe you feel shame after being abandoned by a loved one. Maybe as a child or in a marriage or relationship or by a dear friend. In this family, our father promises he will never abandon you and neither will his children. And I know you may have been hurt by somebody in the church, but I promise you our family is more than that. Maybe you feel shame after being told that you're not enough and that your being and your essence and your existence is, is horrendous. And that's a lie. Jesus doesn't regret making you. In this family, that's a lie. Hard stop. I promise you I'm wrapping up. Just hang in there. <laughs> a pastor named Mason King down in Texas stated that the only remedy for shame is being known by God and others. We are called to do the opposite of what Adam and Eve did. And their shame they hid and covered, but we were, be, we were made to be seen and vulnerable. And that's what this family is all about. So in closing, as a response to our king's sacrifice, we give our lives to participate in his mission to bring restorative honor for others as well. It's not that we just get all of this stuff and we feel good about ourselves. We need to get out and spread to the world because Jesus is going to redeem and we could either get with it or get lost. We seek to bring restoring honor, especially to those who are on the fringes of our society. So allow me to list a couple. To the victims of sex trafficking, which runs rampant in our city. You will never know. I guarantee that one of us has walked by a victim, maybe today, or even drove by. We have no idea. And many of them are experiencing some of the most horrendous evils imaginable and are often shamed by their traffickers and, traffickers and others where they feel the shame for the acts that they have been forced to do and may have been manipulated into developing self-blame. There are so many layers to their trauma and family. We fight until the day Jesus returns to see our family liberated. Come on. Maybe our houseless neighbors who are shamed every day I've talked to many who's, who, who have been spat at, who've been insulted. You're a bum. Get a job. What a way to shame them, right? Oh, why is he just mooching off of the side of the, the, the pavement? Go get a job. Or maybe uh, uh, the refugees who are fleeing to this country, who are just trying to figure out how to acclimate to a whole society that might be radically different than their own, and they hear it all the time, go back to your country. We speak English here. Why? Maybe the children in foster care who are dealing with the variety of traumas and can feel shame because it may feel like nobody wants them or that they don't have a family. We're their family. And there are so many more to name, but I, I promise you I will end with this. What about those who are incarcerated and in prison? Over the last couple years, 
I've developed a relationship with a group of men down at Oregon State Penitentiary. And they go by Yuhuru Sasa. And many of them were gang members. Some have killed other people. Some have assaulted other people. Some have stolen, sold drugs and, and the like and, and, and so much more. However, their value is not determined by their mistakes. I've got the opportunity to see these men for who they are, not just what we impose upon them. They don't tell each other, hey, all you are is a criminal. They actually don't see each other as criminals. They see each other as brothers. And I know this because I've seen it with my own eyes. In a place where they feel the shame of their offenses, the shame of wearing inmate clothing, the shame of being reduced to a number, the shame of society forgetting all about them and strictly viewing them as criminals. The list goes on, and I'm not excusing any of the wrong that they may have participated in or may have done. I'm not excusing that, but what I am saying is that I see the image of God in them. And I know that might rub some people the wrong way, like how dare you? Do you imagine what they've done to some fans? I get it, but they're still image bearers, y'all. In the midst of feeling shame and being shamed, they have developed a culture of honor among one another where they don't tear each other down, but they edify each other through love and correction and respect. And I think Christians online and even in our church buildings can learn a lot from this group of men. They understand that they are in this together, so they put on talent shows and holiday events and celebrations, and I've gotten the chance to be a part, and I've never seen anything like it. And I'm not romanticizing what I've seen and been a part of. I'm saying I've seen God in that place. People are dealing with all types of pain in that space and shame. And when I've shown up, they've considered me a brother and they've honored me by saying, dude, we listen to your, your speeches and sermon. I'm like, how the heck did you? Thank you. You brought encouragement to me. And I'm like, how? Like, but they said, brother, you have no idea. You've been a part of this community for longer than what you've actually thought. And they've helped me in great esteem. So when Jesus said, I was in prison and you came to visit me, this hits a little different because I see Jesus in that community. Oh, are they Christians? Look, man, I see the image of God in that place. And they call themselves Yehuru Sasa because it means freedom now in Swahili. They proclaim freedom now over each other, even though they are physically incarcerated. We have freedom now. And many of them say we are free in Jesus. And this is their way of restoring their honor to one another as God graciously heals them from their shame. And freedom now is what Jesus offers to you and to you and to you, to all of us. We can learn a lot about Yuhuru Sasa.